Hi, this is Joe. And I'm Amy. And this is What Makes It Fun with Joe. And Amy. <laughs> hey guys, welcome to another episode of What Makes It Fun with Joe and Amy. I am Joe. And I am Amy. And today we are talking about uh, animation with, uh, we interviewed Rich Fogel, who has worked on so many awesome series. Uh, he's going to talk all about his amazing career in in um in animation writing for animation uh and producing animation and he has so many cool stories about a bunch of uh stuff that he's created uh one of them i was a really big fan of which was cowboys of mesa um and he did a, a bunch of batman episodes which i was a really fan a big fan of and was hugely inspirational for me yeah and 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 then he talks a, about a lot about like production and production problems. Yeah, and how uh, much influence you have, or you as a writer have, and having to go back and forth with censors, which is really interesting to get an, an inside look. Yeah, and you're you're talking about this earlier, Amy, about how they were they had to do cowboys, but they couldn't fire the guns. Or, yeah. Or, or yeah, they so they had to draw the guns but they couldn't use them or something weird yeah, like that. Yeah, it was yeah, they couldn't actually fire them. Like guns are a thing and you, you'll hear a little bit about it I think in the podcast. Yeah, it's really good. He has a ton of good insight. Um he actually gives really good advice on getting your start in the industry. Um he's also a teacher at Columbia College Hollywood and he talks about how to get your start in the industry, animation industry and he gives advice and tips and his own experience doing all that. So it's a really good interview. Check it out. And after that, um, Amy and I have a round of certified fun and almost fun. So enjoy. All right, guys. So today we have a special guest, Rich Fogel. Rich? Hi there. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you. Um, so uh, let's start off. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the things you've worked on? Oh, I'm too modest to do that. Um, I've been writing in animation for over 30 years, uh, and I've worked at most of the major studios. I've worked at uh, Disney and Marvel and Hanna-Barbera and Warner Brothers. Um, and in that time, I've worked on Batman, Superman, Justice League, Pinky and the Brain, uh, Gummy Bears, DuckTales, Smurfs, Muppet Babies, uh, Transformers... Uh, so you basically wrote my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I like to think that uh, it's sort of like like hiding little time bombs that you sort of like are corrupting the youth of tomorrow. You, you, your work actually had like a really big influence on me when I was a kid. Yeah? I love, I mean, everyone knew Batman the Animated Series, but like I really fell in love with the new Batman adventures. Uh -huh. And... Holiday Nights was the first introduction of Tim Drake, who was my love at 13. Like, I was in love with that character. Uh -huh. And when he entered in that episode, I was like, this isn't, this is not Dick Grayson. Who is this? <laughs> and my favorite episode of the new Superman Adventures is Nighttime. I used to tape the episodes off TV. Right. And then I would tape them in succession. So as a new episode came out, I would tape it after the, you know, after the previous one. So I had a long line of them. And Holiday Nights was first. Right. Or, sorry, not Holiday Nights. Uh, Nighttime was first. Okay. And I loved it so much, I memorized that episode. I could repeat it <laughs> verbatim. I watched it every night while I did my homework. So we have a lot to answer for then. <laughs> <laughs> you are the reason what's wrong with me. 
But essentially, that also, my love of Tim Drake got me into comic books, and I'm a huge comic book fan now. So thanks, Rich Vogel. Yeah, I mean, he's an interesting contrast to the Dick Grayson character that, uh, you know, he's a little more... Uh, a little more positive, a little more upbeat, and he's like the kid who's in it for the adventure as opposed to having the the more dark backstory and stuff like that. So yeah. we, we had a lot of fun playing with him. I thought you did, guys did a great job like skipping over Jason Todd. Like the fans didn't like him. <laughs> so like, good move to like kind of take Jason Todd's backstory and put it on Tim Drake while still making him like a positive and fun and like a little bit sillier character. Yeah, I mean one of the one of the things that was really uh, fun about writing on that series was that we had 60 years of history that we could mm-hmm. we could pick and choose from and so we you know went through that material very carefully and chose what we felt was was the best uh of you know take on each character and stuff like that and integrated it into it and um you know for a lot of people that becomes their definitive version of what this is and uh but, the, but Batman's a very flexible thing. There's lots of different ways you can approach it, a lot of different takes. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that the animated series created a world that people could really get into. Oh, absolutely. And how much, how much leverage did you have? Like, how free were you to play with the characters? DC was very, very good about it. You know, pretty much uh, by the time I got onto the series, which was with the new Batman Adventures... Um, they knew they could trust us, and there were very few issues about it. You know, and occasionally there would be like some creator uh, issue where you know there was some rights or something like that. But mostly, you know, pre- did pretty much what we wanted to, and they they were pretty hands off. Cool. And that carried over into into um, Superman and into Justice League also. Oh, uh, um, so uh, so you you've written. Um, a lot of these episodes, but you've also produced some shows. Yeah. Um, so, what is the difference between producing and writing? Well, I, it, basically, it's um, it's a matter of terminology um, that you're the head writer, basically. Oh. Okay. So, you know, in live action, it would be the showrunner or the executive producer, and you know, it's producer at uh, in the animation thing, and so you know, generally there'll be you know, a writer producer and then an artist producer who you know oversees the uh, the visual stuff, mm. and you work as a team on that stuff. Okay, that's cool. And uh, uh, so, right now, you're teaching um, uh, cartoon development and cartoon writing at Columbia College Hollywood. Uh, what what makes a good like specifically for cartoon writing? What what are some tenets that you would use for that? Like uh, that, that you wouldn't use for like genre writing or like movie writing or things like that for cartoons specifically. Well, I think the main thing is that you want to do something that uh, takes advantage of what animation can do as a medium. Uh, with all of this live action superhero shows that are on like uh, Arrow and the Flash mm-hmm. uh, right now, that um, that line has become thinner, but. But basically, you know, there are things that you can do in animation in terms of the visuals, in terms of the scope of what you're doing, uh, that would be impossible to do in live action. So, you know, if you're going to do something in animation, do something that that is stylish, uh, that that uh, is imaginative, uh, and is not just 
you know, a live action version or an animated version of a sitcom or something like that. Right. That's interesting because, like, yesterday for some reason I was looking at Star Trek the animated series, uh-huh. the old version. <laughs> I was like, they're just standing around talking. <laughs> like, they're not really using the, the medium to its full capacity. Yeah, but at the same time, the original animated, uh, the original Star Trek series was was very limited in what they could do because they had to, you know, build sets and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the the animated Star Trek series, they actually did have some aliens that were a little bit more alien, oh, yeah. and they had, um, you know, some worlds that were a little bit more fantastic. So they did they did some things on a very limited budget. Right. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that because. I got my start in the business at Filmation. I started out as oh, really? a uh, storyboard artist at Filmation. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a very different time back then. Nobody wanted to get into animation. Really? Uh, I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone wants it now. <laughs> I know. Um, and so they were literally just hiring people off the street saying, you know, come on in and work for us. And the shows were terrible. I mean, they were just awful. No wonder no one wanted to work in animation is cyclical. <laughs> but, um, but it was a great place to learn. It was, sort of, it was sort of like the farm team of animation, that you would learn your craft there, and then you would go on and work someplace else. And the people who worked in the storyboard department at Filmation went on to become the cornerstone of the business for the next 25 years. That's amazing. So... So, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of veterans that worked at Filmation from the 50s and 40s, that kind of the golden era of animation. Yeah, it was, it was a nice mixture because they had the, these, uh, these people who were on the verge of retiring who had been in the business for 30, 40 years, something like that. And then they had a whole bunch of kids straight out of college. And um, it was... That's so cool. It was a sort of frat house kind of atmosphere because you know we were like we're making cartoons, <laughs> uh, and we would we would do all sorts of crazy stuff. But um, there was a real passion to it, and we mm-hmm. learned our craft there, and then uh, and then moved on to other places in the, in the business. So yeah, looking at like some of the animation that's out there now, is there any animated show that you're like this is a you know brilliant show? It uses the medium well. Is there anything that you're just like this is the great show on television? Mm. That's a hard question. Um, I tell my students that when you talk about animation, you're talking about so many different things. You know mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Are you talking about The Simpsons? Are you talking about? Um, you know, a Nickelodeon show? Are you talking about a preschool show? Are you talking about an action-adventure show? Yeah. Um, So it's not like it's all one genre. It's it's like it's this field that covers all these different things. Within that, there's a lot of things that I like. I I like uh, Gravity Falls on Disney, I think, is is a wonderfully imaginative show, and it just cracks me up. I think it's really funny. I think they've done a good job with the uh, Star Wars Rebels uh, mm-hmm. series. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's that's really interesting. Uh, Robot Chicken always cracks me up. Yeah. So I mean, there's you know there's a wide range of stuff that's being done that's very imaginative at this point. Nice. Um, but Fred Allen, uh, the old radio comedian, once said that uh, television is a medium because it's rarely well done. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of crap on there too and yeah. you just sort of have to sort of comb through it until you find the little nuggets that are in there so how do you when you're developing a, a show how do you or how 
does like the crap get on the air? If it's going through so many talented people, you know, like uh, artists and animators and story people, like how do you get these bad shows? <laughs> well, a lot of times it has to do with um, um, a lot of times it has to do with the quality of the notes that you're getting and whether everybody's on the same page. Mm. Um, if the network has one view of the show that you're trying to do and the creators have a different view and the sponsors have a different view, then it's being pulled in all sorts of different directions mm. and compromises get made and uh, then the show doesn't come out to be a, a pure vision of what somebody is, is trying to express. Mm. So uh, the ones that are really successful are the ones where uh, there's a clear vision of the show. People know exactly what they're trying to do, and, um, and they have the freedom to do it. Uh, when I was working at Warner Brothers, uh, Jean McCurdy was the head of the studio then, and she was a wonderful boss because she loved creative people. She loved creative people, and she would hire the best creative people that she could, and then she'd say... Go do your thing. Oh, that's cool. And that was pretty much it. Um, you know, and so that allowed uh, Bruce Tim and the Batman crew to do their thing. It allowed uh, Tom Ruger and his crew to do, you know, Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain oh, and all that kind of stuff. And and they had the budget to do it right. I mean, uh, it was a time when they were competing with Disney to try and make a better product than it had been on the air before. And so there were bigger budgets. And so it just was a, the serendipity of that time that all those things came together to make really good shows. So it's, so it's mostly that, like, because like, I know in the game industry sometimes there's people who it's more of an ego thing than it is what's best for the product. It's more like, well, I like the color red, so everything's going to be red. And with no reason... For it, other than it's a personal preference, are there is there a little bit of that in animation, where people just kind of have their own preferences on how something should go without it? Really yeah, yeah. Them? I mean, um, the sort of way in which shows have been developed has changed dr dramatically in the last five years or so, um, because the technology has changed so that students coming out of art school can make polished and complete products using computers and things like that yeah. to do it. And then they can post it on the internet, you know. And so uh, studios like uh, Frederator and, mm. uh, and Nickelodeon, you know, pour over that material looking for, like, what's the next big thing. You know, it used to be that you do it Mad Men style. You'd come into a uh, into a conference room and you'd have your easel and you'd have your artwork up on the board and you'd stand up there and present it and all yeah. of that. You know, now they really want to see a finished product. Mm. You know, and say, ah, oh, this is what we want. Mm. Uh, but that runs into a problem because sometimes um, a kid will come out of school and he'll have made a really slick three minute cartoon, mm. and he has nothing more to say beyond that. They buy the show and they go, okay, let's do more. And he's like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the studios sometimes will then try and bring in a veteran uh, writer or animator to team up with this young creator mm -hmm. um, and sort of help shepherd them through the process. Uh -huh. Sometimes that'll work. Sometimes the, the young artist is not ready for that. Mm -hmm. So... 
So, so nowadays, that's probably your best chance of getting an original creation, uh, an animation into the right hands. It's just completing an episode. Um, there's, there's other ways you can do it. If you're not into like doing all the animation yourself, you could, uh, you could create a comic book or a graphic novel or something like that and print that. Mm. Uh, the advantage of doing both of these things is that you then retain the intellectual property. You own the characters. You own the the uh, the, the the thing, and uh, as opposed to like having somebody hire you to develop an idea, then the studio owns it. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought that the Warner Brothers can like just buy the IP off of you. Oh, they they'll they'll certainly try and do that, but it's up to you whether you want to sell it outright or not. But it certainly gives you more leverage going in. So either like an animation or a graphic novel to kind of get that idea would be the best two bets? Well, I, there's no one way to go with it. I mean, you can, you can take it in, you can pitch it as a Bible. Um, Nickelodeon just finished about two weeks ago a, uh, a sort of open submission yeah, thing. we submitted you, to that. So, you know, there are opportunities like that as well. Um, it's a long shot. I mean, it's like doing yeah. the lottery, but, but you know, you can get your stuff looked at that way. So they're, they're certainly beating the bushes looking for the next big thing. There's no question about that. So in your classes, when, like, your students come up to you, like, and give you the assignments, like, what do you look for in their work and the way that they write where you're like, this is going well or this is not? Um, the main thing I look for is do they have something to say? Okay. Do you have something important to say? Because if somebody's going to give you a million dollars to produce a show, and we're talking literally money like that, um, you better have something important to say that's going to be entertaining and engaging to the audience. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, are the group dynamics working? Do all of the characters have a, a place in there? And are they unique? And do they, are they people that you want to follow on a weekly basis because mm. again some stories are great for a movie idea um, but spinning it out onto a series can be a dicey proposition and so you know you want to have have characters that have enough de depth and enough uh, warmth that you go yeah I want to tune in and see what those guys are doing every week and, and what uh, do you do you think it's Equal parts, or because we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, about how important the characters are. But it, we, I don't know. I think we kind of came to the conclusion that this, the story doesn't really matter that much as long as you have those characters that have yeah. really strong desires and things like that. Like, how important is the story itself? Well, I'm, I'm a big story guy, um, but at the same time, I think character does drive it. Yeah. Um, you're not going to be driven by plot. You're going to be driven by you know who these characters are, what they want, what they're after, and that creates story opportunities. Okay. Are there any characters in animation, like, or just characters in movies, any character where you're just like, this character is so engaging, and their, their wants are the most for you, personally? That mean the most to me, personally? Yeah, like <laughs> any character where you're like, this is such a well-built character, like, I love seeing them every yeah. week, I, I want to know like, what's up to... Like, uh, well, for example, for me, uh, there's this character called Dean Ambrose in the WWE. Uh -huh. and he's everyone's a monster in WWE, but right. this guy's like really small, but he's crazy. Mm -hmm. So you could like, oh, he could beat them. I want him to win, but he's so small, and I'm just concerned about <laughs> <laughs> myself. 
And so like, I want to see him wrestle every time because I know he can beat them, but he's just the size. So that's engaging to me because I used to wrestle and I'm a smaller guy. So it resonates with me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think one of the things that I loved about the brain and Pinky and the Brain was here's this character who is the smartest guy in the room. Mm -hmm. And he thinks as a result of being the smartest guy in the room that he should be entitled to run everything. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. And yet that's not the way the world works. Mm -hmm. And it's that flaw that's built into his character that you know, he, he thinks he's entitled that, that creates his downfall every time. And sort of we enjoy watching the smart guy getting the, his comeuppance in that. It's really funny. There's, like, there's a fan theory that Brain is really the idiot, and Pinky's the genius through it. And like, well, to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, that that Brain has these enormous blind spots <laughs> where he's so focused on what he's doing that that he he loses sight of the bigger picture. Whereas uh, Pinky is more open to what's going on around him. I mean, he's still an idiot, but yeah. <laughs> but a lot of times there's wisdom that comes from just being in the moment and, and Pinky is always in the moment where his brain is not. He's always planning three steps ahead. Right. I always liked how as soon as um, the brain tells him the plan, Pinky immediately tells him what's wrong with the plan and he never listens to it. And then he's always right at the end. Pinky's always right at the end. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. It's <laughs> it never fails to entertain because what, what I, what, one thing I try to do is I try to create a lot of discovery moments mm -hmm. in, in, a, in, in a product that I'm building. But sometimes, like with Pinky in the Brain, you know what's going to happen, <laughs> but it's still really, really entertaining. So I've always wondered about how, how, that, how that was able to, how they were to do that, like as story writers. Yeah, well, it, it's because of the inevitability of it. It's like you want to see how this, how this thing that seems like it, it almost makes sense, that, you know, like it could work, how is it going to fall apart, <laughs> and how are they going to deal with it? That's so funny. Um, so do you, do you work on, uh, so you've worked on like a lot of really established um, intellectual properties. Have mm -hmm. you worked on your own thing, like your own, your own pitch for your own cartoons or things like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and getting an original thing sold, uh, particularly in today's market, is is really a long shot. You know, mm -hmm. just and just because you don't get it sold, it doesn't mean that you weren't successful with your pitch. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of times, what'll happen is they'll go, "Well, you know, that show wasn't exactly right for what we were looking for, but we like your thinking, we like your approach to it. Why don't you come in and?" you know, work on this other show that we've got going and stuff right, like that. So right. it creates opportunities for you. So you have to sort of look at the at the big picture and say, well, I didn't sell the show this time, but I, I established some relationships. I, um, you know, made a good impression and that creates further opportunities. So, um, yeah, I had a, a project uh, called The Phenomenots that I... Sounds awesome. Which That's I, a great name. Uh, which is a, a sci-fi punk rock band from the Bay Area. Sold. <laughs> Sold. And, Bay Area. Uh, they, they dress up sort of in Star Trek-like outfits and they play sort of uh, old-school rock and roll stuff with lots of pyrotechnics and, oh. and stuff like that. They're just very fun and engaging characters. And so I created a whole pitch for a series based on them because one of the things I liked growing up 
was, you know, in, say, an episode of Scooby-Doo or something like that, they would inevitably get to the point where there was the chase scene and they would yeah. have some music, <laughs> you know, playing under the chase scene. And I thought, well, this would be great because all of these, the Phenomenauts songs are about giant robots and asteroids and things like that. And I thought, well, we could construct a story around each of these songs that would ultimately you know, go to the chase scene at the end where you would play the song underneath it and there'd be all these great visuals going <laughs> on. Awesome. Plus they're great characters. Um, and I got a lot of good response from the pitch, but it, it didn't fit into the niche that um, each network was looking for. They, they liked it. It was like, yeah, this is great. We personally love this, but it doesn't fit into our branding. Yeah. You know? And so the branding is a lot of what's going on these days is, you know, we identify ourselves as the... X network, you know, Um, and, you know, one of the things I'm doing with my students right now is we're analyzing each network's offerings and saying, okay, what's, what's in the DNA of a show for Cartoon Network versus one for Nickelodeon versus one for Disney. Love that. Um, You know, and currently Cartoon Network, their, their brand is stupid humor. Right. You know, they just, they want really dumb humor and that's, that's what they're looking for. So you'd have to align with one of their their brands, essentially. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't I wouldn't encourage anybody to develop a show based solely on you know this is what Disney's looking for. Yeah. You know, it has to come from your heart. It has to come from your soul. And if it happens to align with what they're looking for, then that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I went in and pitched an idea one time uh, at Disney, and they. At, they were very focused on, well, we have these, these six points that we need to hit wow. on all of these. And it has, to, it has to cover all of them. And mine hit like five out of the six of Whoa. them. And they're like, oh, sorry, we can't do it. We only hit five out of the six. And it's like... <laughs> How many pitches come through your door that even do that much? Like, unbelievable. You didn't have a little flying character in your pitch. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, in a lot of ways, they've already decided what they're looking for, and they're looking for somebody to bring them the same thing, yeah. uh, which is kind of weird, but... Yeah, it is. It's interesting. Because once you go to the same guys who brought you the last pitch, because they, they gave you what you wanted already... And you already know what it's like to work with them. Yeah. Well, but yes and no. I'm Again, there's always this push for the new, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've seen what this guy can do. Let's see what somebody else can do. But that's still what we want. That's still like his, but not his. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very interesting. Yeah, it, it's an interesting time in the industry. Um, you know, and I'm lucky that I'm continuing to work and, and be part of it. And, uh, you know, I'm as, as big a geek as anybody, and I get excited when I get an opportunity to work on these shows. Uh, you know, currently the marketplace is a lot about the, you know, the franchises and the branding mm-hmm. and so you you look at the fact that uh you know disney spent billions of dollars to acquire star wars and yeah, marvel yeah. and stuff like that so they're putting those things on in order to cash in on what they they did uh nickelodeon spent a lot to get uh mutant ninja turtles and so they're you know that's their flagship show right now mm-hmm. um you know the original ideas. Yeah, they're doing some of that kind of stuff, but only, only as it fits into you know how they perceive themselves as a network. Mm-hmm. Um, is so working on on these these shows and these networks that have all these restrictions on what the show is supposed to be. Does that make it easier to do your job, or does it, is it kind of harder having all these barriers of 
what type of content you can show? They're not barriers. They're not barriers at all. I mean, creativity thrives within a box. Mm-hmm. You know, that if you can do anything, then you don't know which way to go. Yeah. Whereas if you're sort of prescribed, then you, then you know where your playground is and you know how to play in it. Okay. So you know, I've never looked at it as, as being particularly uh, onerous or anything like that. It's just sort of like when you're playing a game, you, you set what the parameters of those games are and you play within that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so it helps you kind of define a lot better the story and stuff. It can, <laughs> you know. Um, certainly, there are frustrations. Um, when we were working on Batman Beyond uh, for the kids WB, the the impetus for that came from the insane premise that kids don't like Batman. What? Well, that is insane. <laughs> <laughs> Edit that out. Um, <laughs> That you know he's an adult character, kids can't relate to him. We need a, a we need a younger, hipper Batman and all of that, and and something that's not as dark. And so, after some discussion, the the premise came up with was okay, let's do this future version of Batman where there's a young kid being Batman, and Bruce Wayne is the mentor, an older Bruce Wayne is the mentor, and. Um, Ironically, it came out to be a much darker show than yeah, even yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> the, uh, the original uh, Batman did. So the, the network was not really pleased with that show because it didn't accomplish what their goals were, mm-hmm. even though it sort of met the parameters that they had set out. Yeah. Interesting. How long did that run for? Uh, two, three seasons. Okay. Yeah. It's, I, I, yeah, I wonder where they get that, that kids don't like Batman from. Oh, you know, they they do market research, they do focus group things, and a lot of it has to do with asking the wrong questions. Oh, okay. You know, do you like Batman? Well, he's kind of a scary character. You know, a kid might not express it that way. He's interested in watching Batman, but yeah. does he like him? Yeah. Mm. That's interesting. Um, so do you, do you notice that in all the things you write... Um, uh, and there's, there's so many different shows you've worked on. One of my favorites was Cowboys and Will Mason. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, how's it working on that show? Did you like it? Or? That was one that was very frustrating because the network had a no guns policy. Um, what? And I did not see this show. But it seems it, like it's it's, it's about a, it's about a bunch of cows who are cowboys. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, and it was based on a series of toys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... What network was this? It was on ABC. ABC, okay. Um, and it was a challenge coming up with stories because of the no gunplay thing. You know, yeah. here are these characters who have guns. Are you saying you can't use them? And they were like, no, we're not saying that. And, but yet every time we had them shooting the gun, they would create real problems for the network. And we had to have extra meetings with them and stuff like that mm-hmm. in order to say, okay, this is the line you, can, you can't cross. And we're like, okay, we understand that. But every time we did something different with it, they would call us in again and say, oh, no, we're not really comfortable with that. So there was a lot of negotiation that went in about that and you know I understand that guns is a sensitive issue but when you're doing cowboys yeah you that kind of goes with the territory they shouldn't have bought the show if they weren't (laughs) comfortable with that yeah do you you ever have them like just throw the gun at someone like (laughs) out of work or are they like "Eh, too much 
playing with the guy. <laughs> I never noticed it that they now that I think about it. So way to go, really effective way to yeah. work within within that parameter. Well, a- the ABC had had very strict standards for for a long time uh, when we were doing. I worked on on one of the last iterations of Super Friends. Um, and they had very strict rules about, well, they're fighting robots, but they can't fight more than three robots at a time because that would be too overwhelming and too scary. Oh, wow. You know, and the, the, uh, the bad guy was Darkseid. Oh. And he had a, a big ship that I called a Dreadnought Destroyer in the text. Yeah. You know, it was never said out loud. And they gave a note, you can't call it a Dreadnought Destroyer because that's too scary a name. Even though we didn't say it in the dialogue, nobody would know it. Yeah. And so you would get notes like that. I mean, there was a lot of sensitivity. So in your experience, do you have a, like a preference of what type of show you like to write? Like versus Muppet Babies versus like Justice League? Like, or It depends upon my mood. <laughs> uh, when I'm happy, I like to write action-adventure. I like the... the 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 excitement and the chaos of it and mm. and smashing things and you know it's just it's a lot of fun when I'm angry I like to write comedy. <laughs> what was Muppet Babies like? Were you just angry the whole show? <laughs> Gonzo. <laughs> no, Muppet Babies was a sweet show. That was really nice. It was a really fun show. That was also a big part of my childhood. Uh-huh. I enjoyed it quite a bit. You know and. Part of the excitement of that was getting to work with Jim Henson. You know, oh, it was God. like, oh. wow, I got to meet Jim Henson. That's so cool. Did and, you oh, finish? And you know, in my in my career, I've actually ended up meeting most of the people who were like big influences with me and working with them. And it's like, how cool is that? That's so awesome. So cool. um, for oh no no I lost it. Love yeah I know. Oh I wanted to ask if you got to create any of the characters in any of the shows. Like did you create characters on the show? And if you did, like what went into that? Um, sure, you're always creating characters. Um, and the fun thing was, you know, very occasionally one of those characters would get turned into a toy, and you were like, oh look at that, there's a toy. Um, but. You don't get any any royalties or residuals for that, so it's just the the thrill of knowing that you helped come up with it. Mm-hmm. Which, but um, in in Batman Beyond, uh, one of the real big challenges of that series was that we didn't have Batman's Rogue Gallery to yeah. Um, oh, yeah. rely on, so we had to create new villains for uh-huh. it, and uh, coming up with new villains that would feel like they were part of the Batman universe, but were not ones that we had used before um, was a huge challenge. That was like the hardest part of doing that show. Yeah. Is, where would you, would you read old Batman comics for inspiration or where do you go for inspiration for something like that? Like trying to think of new villains? Um, yeah, we'd look at all the old Batman things. Uh, there were some established Batman villains that we hadn't used yet in the animated series and so we could sort of rework them uh, and uh, use them so like Spellbinder ended up in Mm. Batman Beyond but another inspiration for it was um, Spider-Man we looked at a lot of Spider-Man comics and Mm. things like that and the types of villains that he would uh, encounter and we would sort of springboard off of that and use those for inspiration Mm. So um, it was all sort of like looking at 
at all the pop culture things that were out there and what would what would work. I mean, one of my favorite characters that we came up with for Batman Beyond was a character named Mad Stan, who was a, a big muscular guy who was played by Henry Rollins. And he was just angry about the way the world was going. He was just <laughs> pissed off about everything. He would go on these long rants and... <coughs> Everything that he said was kind of right. You could see his <laughs> point of view, but he didn't have like the uh, the patience or the political savvy to make it change. And so his solution then was blow it up, blow everything up. <laughs> and so he was sort of this this terrorist who just wanted to go and blow everything up because he was so mad at the world. And yet the underlying things that he was talking about were like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> So I thought he was very funny. <laughs> That's cool. I do like that. I like the characters that kind of flip between good and bad. Mm-hmm. Like in the new uh, Ninja Turtles, there's a character, uh, Slash, I think his name is. And he's he's so out of control, but he's a best friend of Raphael. Mm-hmm. So he helps them sort of, but also he thinks they're too slow and he wants to take crime in, in his own hands justice. Mm-hmm. So they end up fighting him and they kind of go back and forth a little bit. So I think that's very interesting. I love those like, they're not just straight, you know, black and white. They're well, I mean, one of the things that I tell my students is that um, the villain is the hero in his own story. Mm-hmm. That you've always got to have a villain who his motivation makes sense. No villain looks at himself and goes, I'm the bad guy. <laughs> you know, it's like he's got a legitimate point of view that you've got to be able to communicate. That was one thing I always liked about Magneto as a character is you could kind of see where he was coming from. And like, however many times the X-Men failed, you're kind of like, Magneto's a little right. Like, <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe my race does suck. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm human. Um, so do you notice, uh, before I start talking about the Cowboys and Mesa, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, do you notice any kind personally in the things that you write for all these different uh, shows, do you notice a, a similarity between them? Like you tend to lean towards more about justice and more about silliness or characters that are like this. Is there anything that they all have in common, sort of, in the way you write? Um, I would have... I would say I'm probably not the best judge of that, you know, that I, I, I write sort of what I'm feeling. I, I, I write what I'm assigned, first of all. Uh, it is a job. But within that, you know, you, you try and find the character and you try and whenever I come into a new series, I go, what is it that speaks to me about this series? And then I try and latch on to that and, and, and tell the story from that point of view. So, um, like right now... I'm working on the reboot of uh, Thunderbirds. Oh, so cool. Um, which is really fun. And, um, but that show is all about the vehicles. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, we want these vehicles to look great. Well, it's kind of hard to write a story about vehicles. And so it's like, they're going to go and rescue this guy. Okay. He's just a guy. And I'm like, I can't write that. I can't write that he's just a guy. He has, you know, let's, let's come up with something that, that'll be fun. What's his thing? And then we can play with that in the context of coming and rescuing him. Uh-huh. Uh, and so we've come up with some fun characters that way. But, but for some of the producers on the show, that's not really their thing. You know, they don't care about that. Uh, that's interesting. Because uh, usually it's, if it's like Batman or whatever, it's about like revenge and justice and 
things like that mm -hmm. that you would kind of latch on to the vehicles <laughs> well, the vehicles are super cool yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I love that um, you were saying Amy about you I think the episode you memorized oh yeah um, nighttime mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, what, what about the oh, yeah yeah Oh, there's like, I, you know, I watched that episode so many times that they're like, I memorized like even the blooper parts. <laughs> like there's the, this one moment where like Tim Drake is going to walk behind Commissioner Gordon so he can whisper so that Superman can hear him. And it was an animation blooper. So it's right. just where Tim Drake walks and then he walks behind Commissioner Gordon and then walks in front of mm -hmm. Commissioner Gordon. They did a quick cut. Are you aware of like any of that stuff? Like when you see something come to life where you're like, oh, this didn't work out as well as I thought or like, oh, they really didn't understand what I meant. Yeah, well, I mean, part of that is is just how complex the um, the production process is for uh, particularly TV animation because it's it's all been outsourced, uh, and the writing and the boarding and the models are done here a lot of the time, and then it's sent off overseas for production, and then when it comes back, there are all kinds of mistakes, mm -hmm. uh, just because they're doing a lot of work very fast. And there's a certain amount that you can address in retakes. There's a certain amount that you can address in, uh, you know, creative editing and stuff like that. And then at a certain point, you have to look at it and go, is anybody going to notice this? You know, yeah. is it, it going to destroy the story? You know, can we live with this? Yeah, right. um, Mark Evanier, uh, who's oh, written yeah. uh, Garfield for years, did uh, an episode of Garfield where they purposely it was all about the the animation mistakes in it and they did the whole thing where there were there were intentional mistakes in it and uh when they got it back and were editing it the 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 editors like tried to fix the mistakes and he's like no 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 those are supposed to be in there uh, <laughs> the poor editors probably saw that like oh my god <laughs> So it's so funny. That's probably the single episode I would remember out of Garfield. There's like, and, oh, and then at the end, Garfield calls out the mistakes, mm -hmm. and they're totally not mistakes. Where he's like, in the scene, it's oh, like yeah, Garfield's yeah, driving yeah. the car, and John's in the back, and he says, "What's wrong with this frame?" He's like, "There's no gas in the car." <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh, I love when the writers just like flip. Flip the entire episode. Animaniacs um, is always good about that too. They would do the, the crossover episode where like they took like Mindy and put her with Brain, uh, or they oh, yeah. like you know um, yeah. Wacko and Slappy or whatever. It was so funny. I love that stuff. Do you get to do a lot of that when you write, or do you enjoy that? Oh sure, it's always fun to mix it up and and put things in different combinations. Mm -hmm. um, you know when we were. When we were doing Justice League, you know, part of the fun of that was like saying, "What are going to be the fun pair-ups yeah. in here? What are going to be the unexpected groupings where you know you put these two together and they don't get along?" Yeah, um, yeah. I loved when they did uh, Batman Beyond crossover with Justice League mm -hmm. and Static Shock, actually, yeah. which was an incredible episode. Oh, it's amazing. You have to see old Bruce talk to young Bruce. The first time they meet, uh, old Bruce is like surprised to see me. And young Bruce is like, a little? I didn't think I'd live this long. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do you, have, do you have any advice for, uh, I know we've talked about it a lot, but like someone who wants to get into, in, into just the, the animation world. Like, maybe they don't... Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Get out while you're young. 
Um, if you do it, you have to be passionate about it. It has to be like you'll die if you don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, the good news is that the people in animation tend to be really nice. Mm -hmm. And um, I think more so than some other areas of the business. For sure. Um, just because you're a kid at heart if you're into animation. You, you, yeah. you like playing with the toys on your desk <laughs> and all of that. So um, have fun with it. You know, how can you not have fun with it? It's cartoons. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, oh, oh, I was going to ask. Oh, you had a very important question. Oh, a very important question. Have you seen Monster Squad? Yes. Did you like it? Of course. Yes. <laughs> okay, you're good. You're in the clear. We can air this one. <laughs> Classic monsters. What could be better than that? That's also like a huge influential movie on my life. Like, I love that one. Um, so, so I ask every guest. So they see that movie. You are the first, outside of one other one, to have answered yes. <laughs> um, one of the projects that I've been working on uh, recently is a web series called The Adventures of the League of Steam that is a steampunk oh. live action series. That's awesome! And they are Victorian monster hunters in the sort of Ghostbusters type mold and each week they, they are encountering some sort of monster or mysterious thing that they that they try and solve with their technology. That sounds fantastic. Um, and so it's given us a chance to, you know, not do the universal monsters, but sort of play in that in that kind of realm. You know, mm -hmm. I did, there was an episode that I wrote where they where they come across a mummy that comes to life and you know they have to deal with it and it's done in a very silly and fun way and this is online yeah this is, is a web series there, is it up yet can like can we pimp it yeah absolutely it's uh it's um there you go um they're in their third season right now wow um they're an award-winning series. That's cool. Um, yeah, it looks fantastic. And for full disclosure, uh, my son is one of the writers and directors of it, so oh. it's been fun working with him nice. on it. Um, What's his name? Andrew Fogel. Oh, okay. It looks, yeah, it does look like steampunk Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, so check that out. Definitely. Um, the League of Steam. And then you just came out with a book called The Diamond in the Rough. Yes. Yes, it's an adaptation or a, a retelling of the Snow White story set in the world of minor league baseball in the mid-1950s. That's so cool. And uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, and my sort of reason for wanting to do this is that I feel like we as Americans sometimes have an inferiority complex about our fairy tales. Hmm. That, you know, we, we tend to go, well fairy tales, they're European. Mm. Right. And so I wanted to sort of play with the idea of a fairy tale but set it in an American setting and see how, you know, how the story would translate and if the characters would all still work. And so I, I set it in the 50s because you know, that is our sort of mythological period <laughs> of when everything was good. Yeah. Mythological. Um, and I set it against the world of baseball because what could be more American than that? Yeah, right, exactly. Um, yeah. 
but it's got animation in it. It's got pop culture references in it. It's got all kinds of things like that. But it uh, it tells the story uh, in a, in hopefully a fun new way for people. That's so cool. Yeah, you guys definitely check it out. Do you have a website or a Facebook or Twitter? I have a Facebook uh, author page and an Amazon page and stuff like that. Awesome. And you guys definitely check those out. So it's at Rich Fogel, just on Facebook, just do a search. Yeah. Uh, cool. And the book is A Diamond in the Rough. Uh, do you have any other, any other questions? I think I'm good. Cool. But well, thank you so much for stopping by and allowing us to interview you. It's very nice being here. Thanks for asking me. Thanks. All right. I love Rich Vogel. I love Rich Vogel, too. <laughs> yeah. He's such a huge part of my life. Yeah. I think I geeked out a little bit there. Did you really? I think so. Well, you did bring that... The episode of <laughs> yeah. Man, so he just, like, majorly influenced my life. And he was like, I don't even remember that. I, like, <laughs> I did cool. not. Changed my life. Bye. And then he signed your uh Yeah, your my, DVD. my DVDs, which was not in the interview, I think. But just in case you know, I've... Uh, no. I've signed DVDs. Yeah, and... Uh, and then he gave us. He was nice enough, uh, nice enough to give us a copy of uh, his book that he just written, it's "Diamond wrong. in the Rough." And it's a. Uh, uh, and he signed that too. So dual signing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's a really good read. Uh, definitely check it out. I read it and I made a. I did an Amazon review that it should be a Pixar movie because it's got such a good mix of. Uh, it's a really simple, clean story and has a lot of what Disney would do in his films where for every every tear, there's a laugh. Um, and it's just really good. And it's just, it's it's a short, it's kind of short, but uh, I really liked it. And I definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, it's um, good for any age too. Like your your kids could read it if, if, if you had children. For sure, yeah. <laughs> and my favorite thing is the premise is that he wrote it because he wanted there to be an, an American uh, fable American story because all the fables are from Europe and mm-hmm. you know all that so there's not really an American one so that's kind of how he made this one so it's really cool definitely check it out um, so uh, certified fun for animation I know you've probably got like a <laughs> hundred I uh, do have a hundred this is like the hardest like Sophie's choice because there's such great animation shows out right now like Rick and Morty and like Bojack Horseman and like Gravity Falls and like Steven Universe which I talked about in another podcast but mm-hmm. um, I wanted to choose Avatar The Last Airbender Okay. Um, because Avatar The Last Airbender you know Rich when he was talking talked a lot about characters talked mm-hmm. a lot about story and in any anybody who's ever seen this show knows how incredible it is the characters are so lovable and so three-dimensional and so interesting to watch they don't always make the right choice they have tough choices and it's not like your typical like superhero or disney cartoon although disney's are typical disney like classic disney cartoons um where everyone makes the right choice and so should you like they really struggle with some of their decisions and and not everybody who's good stays good and not everybody who's bad stays bad and there's crossovers and some people do and some people don't and the story and the world are so well developed Hmm. that you can everybody reacts the way you you know that 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 is true to their character while still keeping you guessing on what their choices are going to be and they go on adventures that are interesting for you know the youngest of the age group that watches i think the show is meant for somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to uh, 12 
And like seven year olds can watch it and enjoy it because it's visually stunning and like mm. the action sequences are great. And adults, you know, college, older can all enjoy it because the story is just riveting, the world is full and the characters are believable and rich. Hmm. But what else? <laughs> so anyway, no, let's move on. There's so much more. Don't talk, Joe. I have 30 minutes. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. For me, it's like uh, uh, the thing that gets me interested in an animation to begin with is can I, just looking at it, can I see a story just based off of like archetypes? I don't know why I like using archetypes in animation. Can you talk about some of the archetypes that are used or are there any used? Um, you've got um, Zuko, who is sort of the anti-hero type, mm -hmm. and you get to you follow him along, and he's got uh, like there's a Joseph Campbell's hero journey. There's some elements mm -hmm. of that through Avatar too, and um, Zuko also has that element because his grandfather or his uncle, his uncle is sort of like the wise old man figure. Uh -huh. And so there's that archetype. Zuko himself is an anti-hero. Um, I think, I guess like Asaka a is sort of comic relief. Uh -huh. uh, and I know these names mean nothing to you. <laughs> You've not seen the show. Um, Toph is kind of like this tough girl type. Um, and like, I'm not sure about Aang and Katara because they're almost like leading man and leading lady um, more than just like an exact archetype. Like Aang has this really comedic, funny, joking side, but when he gets serious, like he kicks some serious butt. Um, and Katara is also like, she is very smart. If you go with the um, the eight characters of sitcom comedy, uh -huh. this is a book that I like love and live by. Um, like Aang is almost like the lovable loser character, mm. um, even though he's not a loser at all. But he, the idea behind a lovable loser is they keep trying for something and right. a lot of the times they fail at it. And this isn't a sitcom, but Aang's whole goal is to become the avatar. Mm. And he's funny and silly the whole way through. And then Katara would play the role of the logical smart one. And she also, like, she still has her personality. She still gets offended by things. She still acts, you know, ridiculous at times. Mm -hmm. But she's really, like, keeps the whole group level, keeps the whole group moving forward, keeps everybody on track. And I guess Sokka's kind of, like, in his the in his own world character. I could do a whole thing about the eight characters <laughs> of sitcom comedy. It's so helpful for writing. Like, it's mm -hmm. just a, a really great book, and you can pick it out everywhere. If you like archetypes, you should totally read it. I'll let you borrow it. I have a copy okay. um, if you want it. Um, okay. I think... Uh Mine is going to tr transition from certified fun to almost fun because I'm doing another comparison like I did with the Turtles uh, a couple episodes back. Uh, my certified fun is any 1928, 29, uh, even down up to the early 30s uh, Mickey Mouse cartoon. Um, and Mickey Mouse really um, took off because it was the first character to actually have uh, a legitimate realistic character uh, before all the animation all the cartoons where they would be put in situations and the situation was where the comedy was um i'm using air quotes uh and then that was and people were supposed to resonate with that but really walt disney knew that people resonate with the character they have to they have to um feel what the character's feeling so mickey mouse was the first one to actually be concerned about his dog whereas before they would just put you know, uh, they'll put you in an earthquake and you run out of the earthquake building and then now there's a rainstorm. And that it was about the situation instead of the character. And and in Mickey Mouse cartoons, it was very like benign situations he was in, but it's because he was so concerned or he was so 
uh, he was so um, arrogant or very human characteristics about him that you can relate to. That's what made it interesting. And the, the flip side of that um, is Flip the Frog. Uh, he was a character that was made by uh, Ub Iwerks, who actually was taken from Disney uh, back when, uh, when Mickey Mouse was first successful. They took Ub Iwerks away because they thought that he was the one that created the comedy because he was the animator of Mickey Mouse. But if you look at a Flip the Frog cartoon, uh, even even very similar episodes, there's a Flip the Frog cartoon where he's in a haunted house, and then there's a Mickey Mouse cartoon where he's in a in kind of a haunted house. Both of them are way, way different. In Flip the Frog, he's kind of encountering skeletons that are like, I don't know, they're eating dinner, and the, the dinner is, is bones also. And it's, it's not really funny because he's just... Why would a skeleton eat bones? <laughs> Exactly. They almost it, eat flesh. They should have had a big pile of flesh there. <laughs> That'd be scarier. Like, <laughs> and like Flip the Frog just kind of like watching him. But in the Mickey Mouse one, um, he's he's really concerned. Like his dog is gonna get like is a mad scientist has his dog Pluto, and he's gonna experiment on him. So they keep cutting to the mad scientist getting ready to cut Pluto open. Ugh. And then, and then they cut to Mickey Mouse trying, like if he understands the current situation Pluto's in, and he keeps trying to get him, but then he keeps being foiled by the house that keeps opening up and swallowing him and doing all this stuff. But it's because of that, because you're able to, you see a reason to be scared. It's not just me in a haunted house for no reason and there's a bunch of weird stuff going on. He has a goal to get to. He's trying to get to Pluto and he, he needs to get to him immediately because he knows something's gonna happen um, the longer he waits. So it's that tension and it's that it's that purpose, sense of purpose that creates that creates the tension. And then every time he overcomes like a skeleton or whatever, um, there's it's it's funny because you have that tension that's been built up rather than flip the fog where you're just watching him do random things for no reason and there's no reason to be concerned because you don't know what he's doing there to begin with. He's just in the situation. Yeah, it just sounds like bad storytelling. Yeah, it's a bad storytelling. There's no there's no reason to care. There's nothing to you know. There's no anchor. There's no there's no way to relate to the character because he's a he's. I mean, Mickey Mouse is a mouse and flip the frog is a frog, but. Mickey Mouse cares about someone and something, and he's after someone. He has a clear goal, and Flip the Frog is just kind of like walking around a house for no reason, and it's just, it's just, yeah. So there's a huge difference in in storytelling, and that's that's the reason why like Walt Disney really took off. Um, so my almost fun is actually also kind of like piggybacks off my certified fun. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about um, Korra, The Legend of Korra, mm-hmm. which is the sequel to Avatar: The Last Airbender. Um, where we go and we follow Korra, who's Aang's um, descendant, um, and avatar-wise, she's the newest avatar of the time. And we move forward to like the 1930s of the era, which uh-huh. is super cool. Um, there are a lot of like great elements to Korra. The animation, of course, is beautiful, mm-hmm. and like um, the thing that doesn't work for it for me is that well, like Avatar just had these like these characters with such rich like dense personalities emotions and like these you know these funny sidekick animal characters too which were cute and lovable and also had their own trials and tribulations and then these you know the villains the way they were like everything was just so rich Mm -hmm. and with Korra like it's so bizarre because all of those elements are still there there's the like the sort of strained love story there's like there's the fun animal characters there's like also like you know there's a comic relief and whatever and the characters are still like they go through pain but they're just not as lovable 
Mm-hmm. Like they just don't achieve the same enchantment that the original cast has. Mm-hmm. And like even after you get to know them for a while, you're just like that you were talking about archetypes before. Yeah. Like they seem more like the archetype of these people than actually these people that oh. we're watching. And it's almost like they went, oh, my God, like, our last series was so successful, so beautiful. Like, what can we do next? Yeah. And they went, well, you know, like, we thought about the other series, but, like, I guess we could go here. Right. And then when you follow it, it's just like, it doesn't, it just doesn't have the same magic. Hmm. So it's almost fun. <laughs> so it feels like the characters are kind of like vaudevillian actor character like like they're they're trying to be the characters that were actual characters it's almost like Like a parody it's not like to the point where you're like this is ridiculous like they still like it's it's like the uncanny valley you know what that is Mm -hmm. you know like you look at that and you're just kind of like it's just not right like it's too it's close but it isn't it and i can tell Uh, like that's that's the feeling that i get from it not like it's a mockery and it's so far off it's like it's trying to be it but it falls short and it leaves you feeling like no it's not and 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 even for all the work and animation and and storytelling and all that it's if you don't have that that believability of characters. Yeah. It feels like maybe that the original story of Avatar was something that was like loved and cared for it and precious. Mm. Um, and that the new version, Legend of Korra, is more like the elements of the previous story, like reconfigured into like a new package, but it's not it's not the original. Right. And you can feel it. Mm. How do you think how do you think they could have made it like the original? Just not even try to redo it at all? I don't know if maybe they needed to take more time with it and like really like flesh out the characters to the extent that they had the originals. I don't know if that would delay the production for like six years or something. Because <laughs> it's clear if you watch Avatar The Last Airbender, it's such an in-depth story and they know their world so well. Yeah. And even though this is like the future of that same world, they knew that story. Mm-hmm. And Korra's story feels like, yeah, it belongs in the world of Avatar, but it's not... I'm not as engaged. Mm. So I, I don't know, maybe just taking more time, fleshing out the characters, and like really considering the story that you want to tell, and right. like kind of building on that rather than taking the plot, the, you know, the, the elements from the previous world and injecting yeah. them into something new. Yeah, kind of like it's just Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, all right. Um, so uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us on this episode. Uh, be sure to visit us at whatmakesitfun.com. Uh, Amelia, you are at ameliaclover.com? Ameliaclover.com and then AmeliaCloverVO on like Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all that stuff. Awesome. All right. Thanks again for joining us.